Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I feel like I should have a jingle or something by this stage. I have no cool uh, jingle to get me started with this podcast. <laughs> I just jump in with hello. But uh, I'm back again. This is uh, number 13, so uh, unlucky for some, but I'm pretty certain it's not unlucky for us because we have Renee Watson here in the house and she is the founder of The Curiosity Box in the UK, which... I just went into my sleeping daughter's bedroom and for those of you watching on YouTube you can see it now I'm holding it in my hand this is a curiosity box in real life and it's even slightly open and I'm probably going to drop bits of science all over me right now but I'm going to try and open it up it's this wicked box you make science experiments and we made a I can't even remember what it's called a squiggly writing robotic sort of thing which has a little engine on top and my daughter painted it with uh, with nail polish to make it look pretty, as she said. So that is a part of what Renee does. And uh, I absolutely love the concept of Curiosity Box. But we want to get to know Renee and we want to get to know about her background and how she became the founder and how she uh, her philosophies around uh, um, running that business and, and, and winning overall. So. Renee, I would like you to introduce yourself, if you don't mind, and just talk a little bit about where you came from, where you're at now in life, and uh, and uh, yeah, what you're up to. Okay, great. Thanks, Nick. Uh, yeah, so I'm an Aussie by birth. I was born and bred in rural New South Wales, um, and I didn't know anyone who'd been to university, let alone anyone who'd been a scientist. So I guess it was slightly strange that that was the route that I ended up taking but I think I loved being outside I loved exploring I quite fancied myself as kind of one of those like 1900s early 1900s explorers that would you know wear the funny hats and go and discover new lands I quite liked that idea and realized that actually you could do that kind of thing in science there's loads of uncharted territory and that was super super exciting and so that was the thing that's really stuck with me throughout my whole life everything I've done has revolved around sort of the happiness that the, and the joy that you get from discovering something new so that right on the edge of your curiosity when you're really like what is going to happen I've got this amazing question or I've seen this amazing thing um, and I know that that is a very powerful thing I think it's a very powerful force for positive change in the world uh, and that is really at the heart of what has driven me to do everything that I've done in my life and I want to share that joy with other people and uh, find people, particularly sort of little ones like me who perhaps weren't born into a family that would normally take them to science museums and things like that, uh, and give them that opportunity to have a spark of excitement around science. Uh, so that was my background, and that has led me to where I am right now, which is uh, with the Curiosity Box. I launched it back in 2016 and the idea was to get kids doing more hands-on science at home so really looking at I'd been working in schools and doing kind of science clubs and running science festivals and things like that and I kept seeing over and over again kids and their families going oh my god this is awesome I want why can't we do this sort of thing more often and then thinking this is so easy why can't they do it more often and uh, I looked around, nobody in the UK was doing a science and engineering subscription kind of box at home at that point. Uh, there was a company in the US doing something called KiwiCo, um, which I kind of stalked for quite a long time trying to figure out 
how they'd become successful and and looking at that as a business model um so you know i'm a scientist i i'm not a business person and the idea of putting sciencey things into boxes was one that was really easy for me to come to terms with everything else has been a massively steep learning curve so all of the stuff around setting up a business and all the operations we make everything we manufacture more and more actually as it happens so there's all of this stuff that i've had to learn along the way and uh sort of four years in uh i feel like we're starting to really find our groove actually it's been i know for many it's been a really tough year and for us it's been a really hectic year but in many ways lots and lots of positives that is great news. I'm super happy to hear that. Um, I am. I'm so like I love everything about what you do, and and I think I hope you know this is genuine. I know I've I've gone on about it to you in person because we met on a touch field. Which again, if anyone's listened to any of the podcasts, I talk about touch rugby probably more than they should. But that was my big passionate sport. We met in Oxford, and uh, you were uh, you were another yet another touch rugby player, which is very cool. But I want to back up before I talk about more about curiosity box and more about you in your groove right now which i love and more about touch probably possibly later but like you kind of jumped from being a curious little girl in new south wales outback i assume outback sorry that's a that's a british uh, assumption you know, <laughs> by australian standards not really okay but in in news otherwise where you said you didn't know anyone who went to university and, and certainly no scientists in that sense like how does that girl become a scientist like that that you you sort of went oh well, that's my history but it's like how did you go from there to becoming a scientist i get the curiosity sort of helped you get there but like what what was it what was the actual journey there and, and were there like challenges along that way i assume there must have been convincing people this is what i'm gonna do yeah and and particularly i think for a girl it was that I, I've had many, many weird looks in my life from people going, really, is that really what you want to do? Are you sure you can do that? That's going to be hard. Are you sure you can manage that? That kind of thing um, has happened a lot. And I think, um, I think probably my greatest skill is a, a blind optimism and enthusiasm for pretty much everything in life. And I just ignored it. And it's interesting because I've interviewed quite a lot of um, particularly female scientists who are at varying stages of their career, but some you know, people in really senior positions to try and get more of an understanding of what it is and, and that inspired them to become scientists and share their stories as role models. And actually that really innate curiosity and that, that sort of love of finding stuff out comes up over and over again. So I don't think you can underestimate how powerful that is in terms of being a driver. Um, so, you know, when it kind of does feel like I just skipped through, you know, I, yes, there were challenges. Um, and, you know, I had a few, I had, I, I failed half my subjects in my first year of uni. Um, my parents were getting divorced at the time and I think it was a pretty stressful time. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I managed to pass statistics and chemistry in my second year by one percent i'm so proud of that um but then sort of discovered biochemistry had a couple of lecturers who really saw something in me and made me believe it helped me believe in myself um and then things started to really turn around so you know it's absolutely i have not traveled on a linear kind of path through this i know a lot of people you know, super clever scientists, they get straight A's at school, they go to university, they do a PhD, you know, they kind of follow this very 
um, linear academic route. That wasn't me. I kind of I, I've gone all over the place and tried lots of different things, uh, and taken opportunities where they came. I think that was the that was the big thing. Um, and I've I've always loved talking, just generally, but particularly about science and sharing that. You know, the thing that I think is one of the most amazing things in the whole world, sharing that with other people. And so I think quite early on I started doing, unbeknownst to me, it was it's an actual thing now and it kind of wasn't then actually, um, but doing public engagement in science. So actually trying to bring scientists and the public closer together. Mm. And the first thing I did uh, while I was at university, I was really interested, basically I love murder mysteries. And so I was really <laughs> interested in forensic science. So I went and volunteered at our local hospital mortuary, as you do. And um, I thought, you know, if I'm going to do forensic pathology, which is what I was thinking about at the time, I need to know that I can handle seeing a dead body. So I thought, well, I'll just go and see how it goes. Ended up getting on really well with the pathologist there and working there for, um, for most of my undergrad. And quite quickly, um, he at the time was, um, he had, this is going to sound really bad. I don't know how to put this in a way that's not going to be blind eating right now. Um, but basically, he had a collection of body parts. So things that had to have been extracted that were kind of interesting. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't be allowed to do it anymore. But um, I was like, we should make this into a museum and let people come and look at it. And so we created this amazing museum of body parts. Like before the German guy who did all the plastination and everything. Oh, yeah. Back in, back in Canberra Mortuary, we had a, um, a museum of body parts and we used to get schools coming in and um, lots of medical students coming in and um, it was really popular. And that was kind of my first public engagement experience where I was like, this is a cool sciencey thing. Most people don't really get to see inside a dead body. <laughs> not, not like that anyway. Let's bring the public into that conversation um, and get them engaged. And I absolutely loved it. It like brought together all of my favorite things, you know, science, talking, getting people excited, um, getting people asking questions, all of that. And, uh, and that was really the beginning. Now, I finished my studies and decided I needed to get out. So that was when I left Australia. And my intention was to take a year out and do, you know, the standard backpacking around the world kind of thing and then come back. Um, I went on my own and it was it was interesting there were many many highs um, but I had traveled around America on on a budget on a really tight budget um, for a while and then I arrived in the UK and I'd organized before I left to work as an au pair and the plan was then like my accommodation and food was all sorted and I traveled a bit through Europe and then got home uh, unbeknownst to me while I was traveling the au pairing agency had gone out of business so I arrived yeah. in London literally with 16 pounds to my name and three nights in a youth hostel booked and I had nothing else and no one and didn't know anyone and it was um that was a pretty stressful time so I ended up just photocopying my CV and walking around Covent Garden giving it out to everyone and got a job in a camping shop um and then ended up managing to sleep on someone's sofa for a couple of weeks till I got my first paycheck and then kind of got myself back on my feet from there um but that was a, I, you know, it was a very character building time because I was essentially homeless and penniless and I didn't know anyone and I didn't want to ask my parents for help. I was a bit stubborn like that. Um, but I look back now and A, I'm really grateful that I came through that. Like there were moments where 
I was, there was one moment where I was standing in a telephone booth and I had like the telephone in my hand thinking I've, I'm going to have to call my dad and ask him to fucking borrow some money. And there was a poster for exotic dancers on the, in the telephone booth, you know how they have those? And I was like, I was in my 20s then, I could probably do that, I could probably earn a bit of cash doing that. And you know when you have that, it was a proper sliding doors moment, like looking at that, looking at the phone, and I ended up putting the phone down and walking out, and that was when I went, I thought, I'm, just, I'm gonna spend a couple of quid, photocopy my CV, and go and get a job. So I now am exceptionally good at putting up tents. <laughs> um, very, very good at that. And, and kind of learned to survive with, without very much, which was a very, very valuable life, life lesson. Um, and then in London, after the camping job, I um, ended up getting a job with what became the National Patient Safety Agency. So a friend of mine from home came over and she had a bigger sister who'd done the London stay and knew all the ropes and kind of gave me some tips. And I ended up getting this job, which I really enjoyed. And I met one of my first great mentors in that job. She, uh, her name is Kirsten Knox. And uh, she was the director at the time. And she got offered a job in Oxford to set up a national cancer research network and asked me if I'd come up and work with her. And that's how I ended up in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Hence meeting you on the touch pitch. That would never have happened otherwise, Nick. Um, maybe not in the same way anyway. Uh, yes, I was working in the University of Oxford, and at that time, there was increasing pressure from funders to get academic institutions talking about their research to non-act like outside of their immediate niche circles. Um, but no one really knew how to do that, and I was like, I know how to do that. I've done. I have done a museum of body parts. I know how to do this. Um, and so I started doing more and more that sort of linking up lots of stakeholders around important issues that science can help solve. Um, you know, things like cancer, things like medical research, things like climate change, you know, bringing some, all the different stakeholders, the politicians, the public, uh, the scientists themselves, the doctors, all of those stakeholders into conversation about how we move that kind of thing forward, how we fund it. Uh, and I, I, I loved that kind of work. Um, and then I had a baby, which is obviously quite a life-changing experience for anyone who, who has had one. Uh, and at the time, the, that cancer research network, uh, the funding for that was coming to an end. So I was thinking about what I was going to do when I came back from maternity leave. And in the end, I thought, I'm just going to go freelance for a bit and see what happens. Uh, and because I'd been working in a kind of network environment, actually by that point I had a reasonably good contact network, and I just sent an email out to loads of people and said, if you need some help with public engagement sort of stuff, let me know. And one of the first contracts I got was with the European Society for Gene and Cell Therapy. So this is an academic, learned society made up predominantly of scientists working in stem cell research and gene therapy research and helping them to organize themselves and to think about how they fulfill their charitable objectives. Uh, and I'm still, we still work with them. Um, so that's been a 15, 14, 15 year relationship, oh, which wow. is really exciting, particularly at the moment, knowing that vaccines and, um, and kind of understanding what's going on with COVID is such an important part of us trying to overcome this particularly pertinent challenge right now. Um, got to work with some amazing people just doing the most extraordinary research 
and helping them to think about how they become more outward looking, how they think about making an impact on society beyond their immediate research, um, which has been great fun. And yeah, then Curiosity Box was kind of a, it actually started as a sort of project of that original business, What's On that's called, uh, and took, just took on a life of its own quite quickly. And so now they're, they're two distinct businesses and I, I basically get called into what's on if something's going wrong or if like someone needs to talk about it to the outside world a bit. Um, but I have a great team who runs the show there and then um, and Curiosity Box takes up all of my time. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my God. I have so many questions now. Uh, apologies to anyone listening who wanted to go straight into the Curiosity Box because I'm going to back up a bit and talk about something okay. that I'm fascinated about right now, which I know I've just realized you'll have a... A, a much better insight and strong opinion on possibly um the battering that science has been taking in the last maybe five years four years <laughs> around the world but especially from uh, certain folk uh, who are uh having very strong anti-science opinions and yeah. other people who are having very strong science opinions i i can guess exactly where you land on that and i i'm pretty certain it's the same place i land on it i mean certainly like things like anti-vax and stuff like that are very um confusing to me to be quite honest when when it seems so obvious that that, that there are systems and, and vaccines that have worked so well and just a sort of blanket statement you know vaccines are you know terrible and whatever they do xyz it's, it seems like crazy talk but what i'm amazed about is that science and scientists haven't been able to kind of somehow come together and articulate the the the, the reality and the, and the, and you know convince these skeptics in in a in a in a in a decent way and and i think one what's 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 challenge one of the biggest challenges i see is science is all about proving people wrong or how i see it so you can tell me if i'm wrong science is all yeah. about sort of proving things wrong and challenging concepts and having theories and then trying to break them down and, and and find you know find where there's holes in that theory and and you know supporting evidence towards ideas but it, it, it's rarely about this is right, this is wrong, you know, and, and that's black and white and, and we're there. And that's one of the big challenges, because when you then get someone who argues, well, no, it's it's wrong. So it's black and therefore you know it can't be white. And so you're wrong. It's very difficult to argue back at that f from a, 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 a layperson standpoint. Can I get your opinion on everything I've just mashed together in a horrible way? And, and can you talk to me like, like, like a scientist rather than me who's not a scientist? I think you've picked up on something that is the root of a real issue, which is that science is not black and white. It's, it's 100 million shades of grey. And, mm. you know, all good scientists will say that science can only ever prove something to within a certain level of certainty it's never going to absolutely prove facts because there will always be an exception to the rule. Mm. And that's just the nature of, of our existence. Uh, and scientists are incredibly careful when they talk about what they do most of the time to be very cautious with the language they use. So they will avoid using words like cure or curse or you know those very binary terms. They'll avoid using them because they will, they will use language like, well, we think this will do this, or it might, or it looks like this will do that. 
Um, and A, the media really doesn't like that. You know, they want a headline that is black and white and mm. that is provocative. Um, and science is really not about that. So there is a natural tension there between what scientists are doing and how we talk about it. In a way, it makes me really happy that there is so much controversy and so much conversation about science because it does mean that those of us who want to open up those conversations have succeeded to some extent. Because in the past, those conversations wouldn't have even, they, they wouldn't have been, you know, given the, any light of day because the power structures were such that science was something that happened in an ivory tower and nobody was in a position to question it. I think questioning things is always going to be good. I think the trouble is that when, when messages that are particularly messages driven by fear uh, get brought into that mix, it can be incredibly difficult to sift out the information that's valuable, that's valid and that has been validated from the information that's, you know, Mrs. Smith down the street thinks that this is a good idea and therefore it must be right. Uh, and I think the biggest, biggest concern that I have in the last couple of years comes from this them and us approach to a lot of these conversations mm. and the, like around the anti-vaxxer kind of, you know, the, the rhetoric around that is often you're either the expert in the intellect or the stupid person who doesn't believe in it. And I think we need to stop using that kind of language. Mm -hmm. Yes, I find some of the arguments infuriating and, and I can't quite get my head around how that, you know, how someone has come to a particular conclusion, but calling them stupid and undermining their intelligence is not gonna help get us. It's proven that that does not change people's minds. No. So we need to find a better way to open conversations with everyone without and sort of letting ourselves breathe through it, you know, breathe through those moments where you're like, what am I are you talking about? This is crazy. Um, to enable us to air those and to air, air all the opinions and come out the other end better informed. Um, and I think that the big caveat there is that scientists traditionally and still in many cases are not the greatest communicators. So they, you know, the thing with science is that you go from having this enormous amount of knowledge and the further up the ladder you get, the narrower your science knowledge, you know, your expertise gets yeah. until you're an absolute deep expert in a tiny, thin niche area. Most people are never going to care or understand anything more than the surface of that tiny niche area. Yet we ask scientists who are leaders in that niche to talk about a whole load of stuff outside of their area of expertise which you know they might not be very confident with so there are a whole load of quite complex flaws that all come down to how we communicate quite complex things that have very multifaceted kind of aspects to them so we're talking about things that have big social moral ethical impacts on lots of different people and that's always going to be complex but I don't think I've answered or helped your question. No, I think but but it's, it's, it's exactly in line with where I think there is a huge issue. But I'm, I'm so interested to sort of consider. I, I agree with you, you know, calling people stupid and, and just and, and especially like, you know, um, painting an entire group of people with a one brush 
especially a very negative brush and that's is happening on both sides but i think probably from the place you and i are coming from it's happening in kind of a you know the trump supporter i hear it all the time the trump supporter there's uneducated idiots and i'm like well that's obviously not true some might be but then there's obviously some on the other side that are uneducated idiots probably and and but but the the majority of people probably care about something and have had it framed to them in a certain way that is they believe in it they trust someone who is or they trust a a, a, an intent by someone that has made them believe in that and and they therefore it's going to be difficult to shift them off it i think where i see why I asked you the question as well is I see scientists I I get frustrated with that that sort of scientists aren't good at communicating therefore that's kind of a challenge we have where and whereas this, there's a lot of scientists who seem very good at communicating who are charlatans or whatever who are communicating the opposite you know they are the ones that are standing up and saying the very inflammatory this is a fact and you know vaccines will cause autism and whatever and then they get this huge audience because people are hungry for those headlines the media is hungry for those headlines and they get this sort of they become an expert and they are happy to take on that mantle and it's it's just frustrating to me that we haven't found a decent way (laughs) to communicate articulate you know inform educate whatever it is that opposite side or critical thinking actually is what i really think it boils down to because i think a lot of the time it's like what am i being presented with here can i look at this evidence and believe it can i look at this evidence and see its credibility and its flaws you know like what what is this uh and that's also let's swing swing it slightly back towards you one of the reasons i absolutely love what you're doing because i totally believe in it's spiking people's curiosity at an early age and and, to, and having them think about stuff like that's what curiosity is doing right yeah and i think so when we develop our activities for curiosity boxes thinking about how we develop or encourage kids to develop their analytical and problem solving skills is a massive part of what underlies every single activity you know it's all about getting them to stop and ask questions to think about different perspectives on a on a particular problem Um, to get things wrong and for that to be actually a really good part of the process it's a really important part of the process that I think often we just squash out the you know when things don't go right actually that's where you really learn right so building that in making kids feel confident to go through that process from you know four years old when actually they do it fairly innately and we sort of teach it out of them at school um, you know, the, keep that going, I think is an incredibly po- important part of that whole picture. Um, and I think there, there probably are times, coming back to kind of the grown-up conversation, when we always try and present a balanced argument. So take the, the completely unfounded vaccines cause autism debate. And that essentially started because there was a drive by the media to say that actually we need to have a balance here. We need to put, there is 98% of all the scientists believe that vaccines are perfectly safe and are, are the most successful medical intervention in the history of mankind, full stop. Maybe antibiotics might rival that, but generally speaking, really, really good. We need to get the, a voice for the one or 2%. And in that case, it was an incredibly damaging actually unethical thing to do because it causes deaths 
So, you know, I think there is a time and a place where we go, actually, the bulk of scientific evidence is strong enough that we can safely just say that we don't need to have that extra, what's the, you know, the outlier voice yeah. being brought into the conversation. Yeah, well, I agree. And I think they, the media then needs to take a, a quite a serious amount of uh, responsibility for that. And I, don't, I mean, there's that, that brilliant documentary out at the moment, the social media, I forgot what it's called, but the, you know, you're probably familiar with it. It's a, the, the, there's a one about social media, which is, it's frightening how invasive it ha has been and the algorithms, they how they've been tailored to make people uh, yeah. you know, swarm towards different opinions and things. Um, Oh God, that I, I didn't mean to, to really get on that, but I just saw having a scientist, I suddenly realized you're like, you're the one. And and, and uh, I, t I have to say though, getting back to uh, just also tying it in here, something I love. So you'll have, uh, you'll have to forgive me. My two year old decided that your, uh, your instructions was a good drawing uh, item as well. I'm, I'm sure I'm well you don't mind that, that but uh, no, the two year old wasn't into the curiosity box, but it wasn't for her, so. <laughs> As she was as more well, into I just. I think you should maybe she should actually get into literally into a curiosity box. And well, yes, she'll be into yes, it. she probably will be in that. Actually, that <laughs> is that is the sad thing that happened at Christmas when you buy a nice present and then they climb into the box and oh, start yeah. playing with the box. The best bit. But what I was going to say here was like the instructions. And those of you not watching on YouTube, you can't see this, but I'm holding up the instructions. And what I loved about this was it also helps the parents. It gives its instructions, and I'm sure you've done this intentionally because I've been involved in various projects where this sort of stuff takes a lot of thinking to, to produce. And you've, you've, you've given parents cues to ask the kids about when they're doing the experiment. So you've basically empowered parents to be a sort of teacher or at least leader in that experiment moment. And you've also given um, indications on each experiment of how messy it is. That was very useful, by the way, because we quickly <laughs> shelved the one that was super messy until later, until we were ready okay, for that messy. As, as long as you do it. Oh, my God, that was super useful because I was like, oh, maybe we'll put that one to one side for a minute as we have everything out. And then how much help is needed, you know, low, medium, high, it's very simple. And then how much time it takes. And that just, just and then, you know, then indications like cueing the kids because my, my five year old can't read yet. And but I can read this through for her. And then it's, it's showing me questions to ask. What did you notice there? What did it do when this happened? You know, and it's to your point about failing. It's like it's cueing to ask about the fail, for example. And I absolutely love that. And what I was thinking when you were talking about it was like, in a way, you're also educating parents there. You're educating them into how to ask more curious questions to how to prompt that curiosity. Because, and by the way, Renee has a TED talk, which is awesome. You should also see that. You should, if you've got kids, you should get on Curiosity Box. You should also check out the TED talk. But you you talk about that that curiosity and how when we get older, we, we, we're not as curious. Or, or no, we we lose our... Uh, attachment to that curiosity is that right or am I yeah, well, we misframing completely <laughs> we just kind of push it down and it gets piled up with worry you know worry starts taking over and worry and curiosity kind of are, are on two opposite sides of, a, of the balance um, and I think we as we grow up the worry kicks in and we you know that comes from life experience I understand why that happens but sometimes it comes in so much that actually it dominates and we don't have that sense of curiosity anymore and that's really sad, I think. And it's, I, I like to think of um, a part of the curiosity box is a bit like science by stealth. 
So we have um, this concept in science communication called science capital, which I do talk about a little bit in my TED talk, but I didn't have much time and it's quite a big topic, so, and I won't go into it too much here. But basically the idea is that when you're born, you're born with a suitcase and that suitcase is at varying um, levels of being filled, depending on what kind of family you're born into. So if, you're, if your parents went to university and you're going to be surrounded by lots of books and they might take you to science museums or you might go and see something at the theatre that's got some kind of science content, all of those things build science capital. And so um, if you're born with an empty suitcase, you've got a bit of an uphill battle to get that suitcase filled up with science capital and the likelihood is that the less science capital you have, the less engaged you are with science, the less able you are to do things like we've been talking about, like be able to sift through complex information and find out the bits that are actually valuable and validated. Um, and science capital for a child, there's really good evidence that in order to help us build science capital in children, it needs to happen across the family. It needs to happen with the parents as well. And one of my favourite, favourite moments ever, I was in a school in um, one of the most deprived areas in Oxfordshire, and it was a kind of science fair evening, and I was doing some hands-on experiments at the table, and I had this mum and her daughter come up, and, uh, you know, I, I know some stuff about this family I found out afterwards, but... Um, she had been in un unemployed for a very long time and the daughter I think was about eight or something like that at the time and she was really interested in what the stuff the bright colored stuff I think I had fire I probably had fire which is always good um, and they ended up staying talking to me for about 45 minutes and the mum was laughing and asking loads of questions and they were so engaged and afterwards, she said, I, I haven't had this much fun in a really, really long time. And for me, that's, that just proves that science is for everyone. It's, you have a little scientist in you, regardless of whether you think you're a sciencey person or not. Um, and there is something very childlike in curiosity about being curious. And I don't think we should ever lose that. completely agree I, I i so something i haven't said yet but i is is true uh is you've also inspired me so i don't i don't know how much you know about my background but i worked in a, a, an education company for 14 years actually so i was working it was mainly language courses so in oxford in the uk uh you would be familiar with the ef <laughs> students because they yeah. overrun the whole town in the summertime uh which is the language courses and things but also i was working with the um the academics part uh we have boarding schools and all the time I was thinking about you because I strongly believe in that curiosity and and I, I talked a lot about teach so I used to go and talk about education and things and I used to talk about teachers and ultimately for schools and for schooling your kids the teacher that's in this is my opinion the teacher that stands in front of your kid is the key to that kid's educational experience is and it sounds so yeah. obvious but it's I think a lot of parents I met got very hung up on a lot of the features of the school or the bits and pieces that were happening. You know, like uh, if the teacher and, and class size matters as well there, because because if the teacher isn't able to give the attention to your kid, then that's a problem. But if they're able to give the attention to your kid and most importantly, if they're able to inspire curiosity in your kid 
however that takes shape I think that is the most key learning experiences for kids nowadays and and learning things learning things by rote you know tables of information or whatever like that that is just becoming so much less of an important skill than can they critically think things through can they communicate ideas can they can they you know can <laughs> Have they got the confidence to do these things? Like, yeah. it, it, have they got the emotional intelligence or the or the emotional skill set to to uh, collaborate with with other with other children and and other people? And I think those things are so key. And you have constantly been in my head when I've been thinking about that because I I, I really genuinely love what you're doing and I love the idea uh, of the curiosity box. But it's also for me, it's like that energy that comes alongside it is is awesome. <laughs> so yeah it's me dumping I, I a will. massive compliment Thanks. on you there yeah i also love so let's get back to curiosity box so if, if yeah. anyone's listening and they haven't yet signed up then bloody hell get on it but d your title is head of explosions is that right yeah so talk me through that talk me through the because that is quirky and i love it again but you've also <laughs> got I'm, I'm looking at the I'm, I'm just on your website you've got the number conductor uh, you've got everything engineer head of happiness Box she doctor, production prof, community cultivator. So, box doctor, talk me through this. I, 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 what, where's this coming from, and how did you come about deciding on that sort of quirky nature in how you run your, your business? Well, I think if you're going to run your own business, basically one of the things that really drove me to get over the kind of oh my god, I don't know how to do business hurdles, psychological hurdles was that I have a really clear idea in my mind that if you're going to be spending a huge amount of time at work, so if we look at how much time we spend working, you've got to make that count. You've got to make that work feel good, right? You want to create a place where people want to come, people want to spend their time. And you know, I'm a mum and I have two kids. I have so many friends who I've had in tears, who have burnt out because their employers do not recognize that they are a whole human for them they are like the, the word human resources it's not it's not allowed in in our place because a human is so much more than a resource like who thought of that it's such a terrible way of describing a person uh so i think when i set curiosity box up i wanted i had in my mind this kind of utopian idea of what what a workplace could be and I really believe that this is, this is like work 2.0. This is the work of the future. And young people are demanding this kind of thing. So I feel a bit smug because I feel a bit ahead of the game on this one. But basically, I think if you create a workplace that's built on trust, that enables people to be their whole selves, that isn't leave your personal life at the door and pick it up when you go home, uh, I think that, and I see every day, that you get so much more out of people and the relationships and the connections that you build become a part of the fabric of the organization. And you can feel that in the stuff that we send out and the relationships that we build with people outside of the organization. So we have a, um, you know, every business has to do its mission and its vision and its values and all of that sort of stuff. So we, um, we had a kind of an away weekend where we worked on that. And we came up with something called the Curiositution, which is our constitution. <laughs> that is a uh, great word. Curiositution. 
Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. Don't 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 try and say it after you've had a glass of wine. It doesn't work. Um, but yeah, the whole idea was really thinking about what matters and, and the things that came out for us really strongly in that was that we are all about having fun. So one of our values is about having fun. That's inside the workplace as well as in terms of what we pack into our kits and try and get kids doing. Um, failing bravely is one of our um, values and that is around testing, trying, not being afraid to have a go at something little and often and learning quickly from those mistakes um, because that's how you innovate, that's proper innovation. Uh, human connection, so you know, always remembering that we are whole people who are complex and have lots of other interests and you know, you bring your whole self to the workplace. And so when we came to naming the roles, CEO, like um, the other thing, the other word I really can't tolerate, like makes me want to gag, is C-suite. Like, what is that? <laughs> Someone says C-suite and I just think of Arabo. So, um, you know, it, it would have made no sense It's a very British whatsoever. joke. <laughs> Sweets is candy for anyone who's not British. Yeah, lollies if you're in Australia. <laughs> not good. Uh, so, you know, we needed to have job descriptions that were descriptive that made people feel like they were having fun and that they owned that that position in the business and the contribution they make. We also have quite a flat structure. We don't, there's a there's an organisational theory called teal organisations, mm -hmm. which I don't know a huge, lot, a huge amount about. I've started reading a little bit about it, so don't ask me any complicated questions. But when I was reading, I was like, this is us, this is so us. And it's all about just collective empowerment and and not having kind of old school patriarchal hierarchies because I don't think you need them. Um, and I think we're demonstrating that you don't. So having job titles that reinforced hierarchy and were kind of old school did not fit. So we just made them up. That's so cool. Tell me more about like, what, what, are, what are some examples of other things that you're doing that are unusual or quirky that you feel? you're proud of what are the things you most enjoy at your workplace or your your i guess the workplace at the moment is a, a strange <laughs> concept in covid times yeah. but in in uh, the way in which you work let's say um well we're constantly developing new products so there is there is almost never a time when you come into the office and there isn't something literally bubbling away somewhere <laughs> like being experimented on or tested uh, for some kind of future future development um, in fact, today I was having a meeting about a new project that um, is going to be turned around very quickly. I think it will be launched in March, um, which is about looking at how we can get kids making tiny robots that scare um, insects away from crops to reduce the use of pesticides. Anyway, so, you know, there's fun stuff like that happening all the time. Uh, so I like that. And um, we get families sending us in feedback and comments and things quite a lot which I love the pictures of the kids doing the experiments I mean you know if if I could if that could be my currency and I didn't have to rely on money I would be the happiest person alive um I think the thing that I'm most proud of in the last year actually feels like I have been working on purpose more than probably ever before so when lockdown one hit um, we knew that very quickly that disadvantaged kids who weren't in school so the ones kind of in that middle layer where mm -hmm. they're not sort of vulnerable or key worker children so they'd be at home but they'd be struggling 
um, we knew that that was going to be a really big issue. So um, we were all set up and ready to send stuff out. And that's what we do. So we started contacting social mobility charities and organisations that were doing food parcel deliveries to families and said, we can send stuff, you know, let us send stuff out with your with whatever it is you're doing. Um, and so we sort of, we picked the boxes that fit best with the curriculum, um, with the school curriculum. And we added a load of extra stuff, just basic things like pencils and rulers and scissors and things, uh, and sent them out to, we've sent out to just over 22 and a half thousand children since March last year. That's and incredible. that has been, I mean, the feedback we've had from that has, I've cried a lot. Yeah. Um, I think my my favourite bit of feedback um, was from a little girl who said, um, oh God, it's going to make me really emotional already. Um, she said, I've n I really love drawing and I've never had my own set of pencils before now. And I was just like, it's just the simple things that actually, you know, can make a massive difference to a child. Yeah. Uh, so that for me has been super, super, super rewarding. And actually, I'm investing a lot of time at the moment trying to figure out how we can stay embedded in that whole let's disrupt the, you know, the privilege gap. And yeah. we cannot go on in the UK, particularly. I know this happens everywhere, but it's just so in your face here at the minute. Um, in a country like this, in a developed country with the levels of disparity between the richest and the poorest, it's just not OK anymore. I totally agree with you, actually. And it's funny. Uh, well, it's not funny at all. It's uh, interesting how you mentioned about a low income area of, uh, of Oxford. And I can probably guess which one you were talking about, actually. But what what's interesting as well is people who don't know the UK, perhaps, or, or, or maybe even, you know, who are in the UK, but don't know Oxford. Like there, I think in the back of everyone's mind is like Oxford, Oxford University, this very rich sort of Harry Potter-esque place there's some re people in Oxford, like very near the centre, actually really struggling. And there's a lot of people. And, and I think that's one thing that's, that is, for me, it's, I, in previous jobs, I've, I've worked around those different communities and, you know, mainly recruiting host families. I wasn't doing something bold and, you know, lovely like you've been doing, but like still I got to sort of experience and, and, and meet lots of those families. And, and it, there's a lot of people really struggling. And that for me is a big frustration because I think, you know, as well, linked back to the bit before in the conversation, we, we, you know, it's easy to paint brush in your mind what people are like or how people are. But when you actually get on the ground and meet people, it's, you know, it's, people have very similar intentions that, you know, people have yeah. good intentions to others. The, the majority, like I am a strong believer in the goodness of humans. And I, and I know there's idiots out there and I know there's horrible people out there but there's so few and far between compared to the amount of people who just are trying their best for their family are trying their best especially for their kids and you know wanting the best life they can get for their kids it's not just about the tv and the mobile phone and whatever it's about how do I bring my kid up well but so many challenges can get in the way of that that it, it becomes yeah overwhelming and I love that you've done that Renee and you your team have done that it's an absolutely fantastic uh, mission and it's great to hear that it's continuing so yeah, good for you man wow thanks yeah, <laughs> no, i'm really really chuffed with that yeah and i bet it, you know that you talk about painting over and i have to hold my hands up when i started out doing this there were so many assumptions and preconceptions that i had despite being a kind of 
total lefty snowflake who believes the same kind of thing as you. I still, there were still things, I complexities to the, the whole poverty picture that I did not understand. And I didn't grow up in a, in a wealthy environment. I've experienced, you know, when I was saying before, in, when I was in London, I've experienced some financial hardship. I kind of know what it's like not really being sure where your meal come, next meals come from. So I, I get that. And I, I, there was just so many things I underestimated and that I didn't fully appreciate. And I'm sure there are still many more surprises that I haven't uncovered yet. Uh, and that again, that, that binary painting of good and bad and rich and poor and, um, you know, dull bludgers and, and people who work hard is, is so unhelpful. Yeah, because it it so often is not. It's never. It was almost never that cut and dry. And in fact, not that they need as much defending. But I, I have to say, while while we're talking about it, because we have friends who have been to very good schools and things, and you know, like the the posh public schools as we call them in the UK, the the private boarding schools and things. And I find it frustrating. I I, I went to a really good school in the UK as well. But I, I find it frustrating when I hear people talk down about you know Eton boys, for example. Like you hear that all the time, and all these people in government who are in Eton, and you know Boris Johnson's friends. And so, so many of those guys that have gone through that school have had such good fortune to be able to travel out around the world and see real things around the world and experience real life as well. Of course, there are some that are living extremely sheltered and, and you know, have, have a very, very narrow point of view. But there's so many. I, and I know a bunch of people who've been to these great schools and had these opportunities to go to, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and, and see real poverty and like be involved on a, yeah. like a, a visceral level and, and then and then take that and run with it. You know, uh, we, we've got friends as well who've done amazing things, you know, moving forward from that. And and it's 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 just frustrating again it's that paintbrush of like well they're you know snotty nosed yeah. you know they're, they're they're completely privileged they're and they have no idea about, about real life it's like everyone has an opinion and a perspective and you should probably listen to the perspective and opinion before you cast judgment uh, at least hear them out you know uh, yeah. and i think that's that's where i try and focus my uh, attentions and one of the reasons I like doing this podcast I mean I am interviewing people who I already like and are inspired by but I, I always try and challenge my own preconceived ideas about stuff so I also watch you know right-wing news stuff sometimes and things yeah. because I want to understand how are people being presented things you know how is this information being presented um, but yeah it's it is frustrating it, it is frustrating to hear that 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 paint brushing of uh, or broad brushing of of different people god i got really uh, a bit righteous in this uh, this chat sorry <laughs> the one thing i wanted to ask you before i let you go because i know it's getting late with you and i appreciate i so appreciate your time um, we had a little bit of a hiccup getting started so um i just wanted to ask you about like competition and things because you mentioned about KiwiCo in the us you said that right at the beginning you stalked this company and, the, and their business model and something i became aware of when i was looking at curiosity box like three years ago or something, I think I contacted you about it because there's a, there's a YouTube channel called Vsauce, which I love and I'm sort of I'm a huge fan of. And then they started doing this curiosity box and I was like, oh, they've stolen from Renee. How dare they? And I was really like upset for you. But uh, you've told me it's not a long story. So I figure you can probably tell me about that. But what, what happened yeah. and how does that work in your business model and how does it affect you guys? And, you know, is there any, any, uh, sort of big effect for you 
Okay, so it was really unfortunate. So there's no maliciousness in it, which is good. Um, we launched in June 2016. They launched about three weeks after us. Uh, we so there was they. It wasn't a stolen idea. I think it was just that obviously two. It's a great idea. So then two people had thought of it at roughly the same time, and we just happened to launch a bit earlier. Um, they are actually infringing our trademark. We did have some conversations with them about it quite early on. Um, they have such a massive digital presence already because of the Vsauce following. Um, and they brought lawyers in and we were like, oh, we're just not in a position to fight this. They're in the States, we're in the UK. Like, we're not gonna be doing stuff in the States anytime soon because getting like all the certifications we would need to sell a kid's toy in the US is just massive. Mm. Um, so we kind of just agreed to let each other do our own thing and see what happened. You know, we're both startups. The likelihood was that one of us wouldn't survive. Mm. Um, we have still both survived. So at some point I will probably go back and try and have a conversation with them. I think the one big problem they have is a complete lack of diversity in their team. So um, what I would really like is to be able to go back to them and say, hey, why don't we do a partnership? And you know, we can bring some female energy into your team do some cool stuff and do some things across the pond. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much the whole story. Very cool. Okay, so it's not super controversial or anything. I was just I was just actually I'm still on this page with your um, your uh, team. And you were saying diversity, I can only see women on this team, Renee. Yeah, no, we have a diversity issue. <laughs> we, do, we do actually have one boy and he is a boy. He's only 15, but he comes in and he's, it's his weekend job. He comes in and helps us pack boxes. That's Roderick. He's your diversity um, quota. In the past, but yeah, I know we, um, we're recruiting five positions at the moment and I'm hoping that we've actually been working um, with an external advisor to help us to make sure that we are as inclusive in our um, recruitment process as possible i was just kidding around i could not care less if they're <laughs> the right funny though but it's kind of an interesting <clears throat> example right of you know the language in our job descriptions the language that you're looking at the way that we run the business it's a women-owned business 50 percent of our shareholders are, are female and that was hard work but we got there 50 percent of our board are female so you know, it kind of, you think, switch the tables around and that's how it happens. Yeah, yeah. You know? No, so I'm, we do uh, have to work at it. Yeah, it takes work, but it also takes work to recruit the right people as well, right? I mean, that's a big challenge and that's what I was about to say. If they're the right people for the job, then they should obviously have that have those jobs. Like, it's, uh, yeah. it, it's, it looks like a very, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm looking at a lot of smiling, fun people. So uh, it looks like they fit they're in great. with your company culture there. So, um, yeah, great. Renee, I'm going to let you go, but I, uh, I, before you do go, I really encourage anyone still listening, and thank you so much for listening, by the way. Uh, I really encourage you to go and check out Renee, uh, check out Curiosity Box. If you're in the UK, I mean, I, I have to give a shout out to Auntie Jen, Jen Heinem, yeah. who has Woo, been shouted Jen. out before. If you're still listening, Jen, and you thought you didn't get a shout out, well, hopefully you're still <laughs> listening now. She's the one that actually bought the Curiosity Box for Leonora uh, and sent it, um, which was super awesome and we're very, very grateful um, because normally they don't, they're don't they not getting sent to Norway, I guess. Uh, so that was... Uh, no, they do. We do actually have... Oh. In fact, Denmark, Norway needs to step up its game because Denmark is... Um, we've got quite a little hub of 
All Amazing right. Well, there we go. So I have to start selling it's it for you challenge. over here. Perfect. So, so the, where do you ship to then? Tell, tell, <laughs> it's now uh, we ship basically everywhere except the US. Okay, perfect. I didn't yeah. know that. I think, but previously when we were talking about it way back, it was I think I was living in Hong Kong or something, or in, and it was like this is going to be too challenging. But uh, that's great news. Yes. So I do have to add a little caveat to that, which at the moment with Brexit all happening, it, there are some speed humps oh, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll get back to it yeah yeah i heard i heard brexit was going to be fine someone told me uh, <laughs> uh, the whole podcast <laughs> um the uh so yeah get on it and and uh, if your parents check it out get on it it's amazing it's a brilliant product and and a brilliant team obviously putting it together uh also check out her uh, ted talk it's really really cool uh, i love listening to it and uh, obviously follow her well, do you want them to follow you on any particular social channels or just follow curiosity box or anything like that yeah any any and all of that you can even follow me in the street if you want I mean, <laughs> yeah and i think you know how many people we're talking to here we're talking to like yeah. jen my boss uh, ollie christian who listens uh, to all jen my podcasts is welcome to follow me <laughs> jen is a brilliant person we didn't even talk about touch oh dear yeah, no. never mind well big shout out to anyone from touch listening still uh big love and thank you so much renee uh you've been amazing amazing guest cheers thanks so much nick